0: My name is Dale, and today we are going to be reading from the passage of uh, 1 John, chapter 1, verse 5, to chapter 2, verse 2. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. For if we say that we have, for if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have the advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world.
1: Well, good morning! Yeah! Welcome to Central Heights. My name is Nathan. If we have not met, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to be with you today. We continue our series through the book of 1 John, and today we learn about what John would describe as the summary of his message. He says it in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. Now, as we jump in today, I chose that song not because I think the song is saying the same thing as as what John's saying here. John is interested in describing God as the source of all goodness, all truth, all beauty, that he is perfection itself. The song by Kanye West is saying something slightly different. I choose this song actually to describe Kanye's story because I think it outlines a little bit of what John is experiencing and why he chooses to write this letter. So Kanye, around the time of writing this song, wrote another song called I Am a God, at which point he, or in the song, he has a conversation with Jesus and receives the name Yeezas. If you are unfamiliar with Kanye, this is your introduction. He is a very talented musician and producer and also one of the most narcissistic humans alive. (laughs) Then 2019 rolls around. Kanye begins to profess faith in Jesus. He actually releases a gospel album called Jesus is King. And on a musical level, it is by far his worst album. (laughs) He has such eloquent lyricism as to say, closed on Sunday, you, my Chick-fil-A, in describing Jesus, it's, it's pretty challenging, it's tough. But he, throughout the course of that year, continues to proclaim the fact that he is seeking to follow Jesus more than anything else, more than fame, more than popularity, more than anything. If you're familiar with Kanye's story more recently, you would know that Kanye has disappeared from the public eye. He has been removed from all levels of sponsorships because he went on an anti-Semitic tirade. And has been cast off from society. Here's the thing that's interesting. You heard that he's a narcissistic human being, you kind of chuckle. But now the fact that he claims to represent Jesus and live this way, it just hurts a little bit different, right? This is what John sure thought. Verse 6 If we claim to have fellowship with him, that is, if we claim to have relationship with God and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. It's a message against the hypocrisy of claiming to live one way, claiming to proclaim a certain type of life, and yet living in a different way. It's one of Jesus' harshest messages, is against hypocrisy. It's also why we think John wrote this letter. We're going to see time and time again throughout this series that John is coming against false teachers, people who claim to know God, who claim the name of Jesus, and yet live in a certain way, teach in a certain way that is far different than what Jesus himself would proclaim. If we start with this image of the fact that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, I think the challenge that John is dealing with in his day is this question. How can perfect light touch the darkness? How can both those things be true? So to that end, we're going to dig into 1 John, starting at chapter 1, verse 5, and we're going to see that John's starting point is he has a really interesting comment about what fellowship looks like, what relationship with God and others looks like. So read with me in verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him, that is with God, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. John consistently, in the course of this letter, is going to kind of create two divisions. One side, the side of light, the other side, the side of darkness. In this case, the side of darkness is also specifically the side of sin, which John sees as the central issue, that Jesus needs to purify us from all sin. What's fascinating to me, though, is the way that John describes the side of light. In verse 6, God, if we Claim to have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness. John's describing the side of light is the side where we have fellowship with God. And then in verse 7, he continues to use this language, fellowship, but he switches the image. Because John set it up talking about fellowship with God, we would expect verse 7 to read this way. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with God. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. But John does this little shift in there. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We heard last week from Dave so well about how this word fellowship is about this deep, genuine community with God and one another. What John is doing is setting up the light. That is, with God is the only place where we can have deep, genuine community with God and with one another. But it's also then paralleled by the fact that in the darkness, this doesn't exist. What John is saying implicitly, is this. The darkness pushes us into isolation. That the only place to experience this genuine community is in the light. It's with God, and if you don't, if you're not in the light, you don't experience this community. I know of no book besides the Bible that explains this better than this novel by Dostoevsky. Who here has heard of Fyodor Dostoevsky before? Is that a name? few of us know. Okay. So Dostoevsky lived in the late 1800s in Russia. He's a novelist. He wrote novels that were pretty gritty, that were dealing with the challenging socioeconomic challenges of the day. But in this book, I think it's the best unpacking of sin and the ramifications that I have ever read outside of Scripture the protagonist, the hero of the story, Raskolnikov, opens by committing a heinous act. He decides that the best path forward for him is to murder an innocent old woman. So he breaks into her home, and he murders her. And as he's stealing her possessions, her younger sister comes in, and he's forced to murder her as well to cover up the evidence. The next day, Raskolnikov is at a police station for a different reason. He has some rental issues that he has to deal with, and he's not sure if anybody knows. The entire rest of the story is uh, Dostoyevsky's exploration of how, of how Raskolnikov is gonna deal with this act and what's gonna happen, and what we see time and time again is the way that Raskolnikov gets pushed into isolation. Here's what we see as he's in the police station the very next day, but it was a strange thing he suddenly felt he really did not give a damn about what anyone thought. And this change took place in the interval of a single flash, a single moment. If now the room were to suddenly have filled up, not with policemen, but with his dearest and most cherished friends, he would not have had a single kind word to say to them. So desolate had his heart become. His soul had suddenly and consciously been affected by a gloomy sense of alienation, compounded with one of an agonizing, infinite solitariness. The darkness pushes us into isolation. We see throughout the story that Raskolnikov, anyone who's near and dear to him, who cares for him, who wants to support him, he pushes them away. This is exactly what the darkness does. It's why when you feel like you've been caught in a mistake or something, you instantly dissociate. You go to your phone, you go to your favorite app and you just try and check out. That's why, about a year ago, as I'm in a conversation with someone who's looking for support and I'm talking to them, they instantly just call me out and say, you don't believe my story, you don't, you, you, you don't think I'm actually struggling in this type of way, and, and the issue was, they were right, they called me out appropriately, and in that moment, I just like, felt so challenged, so convicted of my own sin, my own prejudice, that I go home and actually what I did is I cancelled my plans with friends that evening. My wife went out with them by herself, and I just wanted to be alone. The darkness pushes us into isolation. We see this time and time again. But in our day, isolation is not something that we just experience from time to time. It actually is the general cultural ethos we just live and breathe in, right? Isolation and loneliness is our general experience. I've said time and time again up here about how we struggle to find friends. Research shows that we struggle more and more all the time to struggle to, to, to find friends. That today in this building there will be hundreds of you who will walk beside each other each longing for more community but being unable to find it here. This is the general ethos of our day. And this is exactly what you would expect to find in a culture that rejects sin. That rejects the very thing, that rejects the very idea of the thing that would separate us and push us into isolation. And I think that's exactly what's happened in our day. And there'd be two ways for me to try and argue this. One would be to unpack later on in 1 John how he goes about this. He's going to say in chapter 3, verse 4, that sin is lawlessness. That is, sin is anything that rejects God's law. And so we could go further. We could unpack how we might deny this. We might, we might disagree based on I don't know, not agreeing with God, not agreeing with what God's law says, differing on him in areas of love, of generosity, of sexuality, of pride, and ego, all these types of things, we might disagree, or we we might just disagree with God, like his existence altogether. We can go that way about whether or not we believe in sin. And in fact, I like that way, and so I kind of snuck it in there anyways, because I think it's important. But it might just be simpler to ask this question. When was the last time you heard someone talk about their sin? Or more specifically, when was the last time you talked about your sin, about your rejection of God's law? Has it been days, weeks, months, years? Has it happened? Listen, we struggle enough to just simply apologize to someone, but to get to the point of confessing our sin before others and before God Himself, it is a very, very rare occurrence indeed. For John, it's a very serious thing to take, or it's a very serious thing to do, because he's going to have some serious ramifications. But I just want to take a moment to pause here of what I think is one of the reasons we struggle so much to talk about it, and it's what scholars call a therapeutic worldview. Let me break down what I mean. That is different than therapeutic practice. We as a church are pro-therapy. I'm pro-therapy. I've had a great experience. A few years ago, I was in a place where, like, I could not process what was going on emotionally. One day, I was angry, and I didn't understand why. Two days later, I was like lazy at for, for some reason I didn't understand why two days later I was like hyper productive and I couldn't slow down I didn't understand why like irritable all these types of things I just couldn't process what was going on emotionally and instantly in that moment. I knew I needed therapy So I talked to my friend Catherine Morelli who's ex- herself like an exceptional therapist and she got me connected and it was this beautiful experience where each time I'm going I'm like Man, this is expensive. I don't know if this is worth it. And then I come out of it being like, no, this is like exactly what I needed to process what was going on emotionally, to access some pain I didn't know that was there. Hugely beneficial. We are pro-therapy. If you, if you just, to hear me clearly, you should go to therapy. Like, you probably need it. <laughs> Especially you. Sorry, I don't, I don't know why I pointed it. I apologize to whoever I pointed at. But like, probably true for you as well. We are, we are pro-therapy. The challenge when it moves from therapeutic practice to a therapeutic worldview is when we begin to believe that all of our problems can be solved in the world of therapy, when we believe that all of our problems are going to be dealt with by greater emotional self-awareness and by accessing our pain, and implicitly when we begin to deny the central reality of sin, which John is going to say is the most important thing that we need to deal with, that ultimately we need the blood of Jesus to purify us from all sins. Here's a quote from Charles Taylor, the philosopher, which is going to be wordy, and I know I like my wordy quotes, but I'll break it down for us afterwards. The triumph of the therapeutic is the desire to do away with the category of sin, which it attributes at some level an ill will to the sinner. The deviant is instead a victim of bad training or illness. He's not there as an agent endorsing his own lamentable, destructive behavior, someone we should therefore condemn. Rather, he's caught in a cycle of compulsion, from which we can liberate him through therapy. We elevate the therapeutic practice so much to the point that we forget the reality of sin is the ultimate thing we need to be cleansed from. Here's what this looks like in practice. Imagine we're sitting for coffee one-on-one, and I tell you, I just feel very broken. You, if you are a good friend, are gonna sit with me and ask me why and, and process with me. If, however, I sit with you and I just say, I'm just bad, I'm just a bad person, your gut instinct is gonna be to say, no, you're not. You're not a bad person. Don't use that type of language. It's why we're more familiar, why we tend to resonate with language, how we are all wounded, but we would recoil at the notion that we are all wicked. We're more familiar with categories of pain than we are with categories of guilt. We tend to to see the central issue in terms of suffering rather than in terms of sin. And of course there is some truth to this idea. Jesus came and He healed people. He ended suffering. When He returns, He's going to end all suffering and all sorrow. We know that suffering can be the root of other issues. We know that hurt people hurt people. We know that these things are true. So again, go to therapy, but continue to recognize this central reality of sin. Because insofar as we are unable to talk about sin, Listen to where John is going to push us. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, which I think we do implicitly when we are unable to talk about it, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us just to see even more specifically what John is saying. We're gonna flash three verses on the screen at the same time. So the first one is from 1 John chapter 1, verse six. Yeah, it's the next slide, you can go to it, thanks. So this is the point where we're talking about hypocrisy, and this is the consequence of hypocrisy. If we practice hypocrisy, we lie and do not live out the truth, that's verse six. Verse eight is if we claim to be without sin, the thing we implicitly do when we're unable to talk about it, if we claim to be without sin, now no longer are we not practicing the truth. The truth is not even in us. We are void of truth altogether. Verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, his word, that is the word that's already been described earlier as the word of life, Jesus himself, the word of life is not in us. In other words, John is serious about hypocrisy, but he continues to recognize, listen, we need to see that sin is our central issue. I think this might push us to understand one of our common experiences today. John has just said that our distance from God is the result of sin; that we lack Jesus's presence because we deny the reality of sin. Well, we talked earlier about how the darkness pushes us into isolation from one another. Here we get to see how it pushes us into isolation with God Himself. And I think this is one of the things that, again, is just so common in our day. We are not living in a day where people's primary concerns about God are rational, about does it make sense for God, can it be a logical type of sense. It is true. That has been one of my issues of of faith, is seeing whether or not God can actually make rational sense. But our more typical experiences or struggles with God are like, where are you? If you're real, why can't I see you? Why aren't you showing up? Why can't I feel you? Why can't I sense you? I just want to offer a question into that. Is it possible? Is it possible that your sense of distance from God is based on unconfessed sin? The consistent message of Scripture start to finish is that our sin separates us from God. So is it possible that your sense of distance from God is based on unconfessed sin? It might not be. One of the stories we hear of Christian saints throughout history is how many times as you go through the process of maturing in your faith, there is a season where it seems like the presence of God disappears from your life, and in retrospect, they reflect on it as a time where they were learning to follow Jesus, even when emotionally they couldn't feel him. That is a true season. That is real. But I just want to ask the question, is it possible that your sense of distance from God is based on unconfessed sin? And if it is, would you consider confessing it? Would you consider stepping into that? Confession for John is the way you move from the darkness into the light. The darkness has had these central images that he pulls alongside of it. One of them is the image of sin. One of them is the image of isolation. But there's been this other image that he continually comes to, which is the image of deceit. We see this in verse 6. We lie and do not live out the truth if we're in the darkness. In verse 8, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In verse 10, we make God out to be a liar. There's this central image of deceit he comes to again and again. And the reason he does that is because he is accessing an image from the beginning of creation. He's accessing an image from Genesis 3. So what we see in Genesis chapters one and two is that God creates the heavens and the earth and he makes them good. We could say, in fact, that God made the heavens and the earth to be a place of light in which there was no darkness at all. And then in Genesis three, we see something happen. We see a serpent who launches a project that is gonna plunge the world into corruption and suffering. And it starts with a question. Did God really say that you should not eat from this tree? Then Eve responds, yeah, He said if we eat from this tree, we will die. And then the serpent responds back, you will not surely die. At which point, Adam and Eve take the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They reject God's law, and the world is plunged into suffering and corruption until the day where we long for when Jesus returns. But the moment it started was with deceit. That's where all the corruption began. John's accessing that image. It's no surprise then that John in his gospel is going to show how Jesus, the one who's going to rescue us, comes as the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. That this great act of deceit was undone by truth. And it's no surprise here that John is going to see the pathway to move from the darkness to light is gonna come in confession, because this is what confession is. Confession means telling the truth about yourself and particularly your sin. It means no longer hiding that reality, no longer trying to present a perfect mask, but actually acknowledging the reality of sin. And this is how you move from the darkness light. This is how we come into the presence of the one who is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so what I want to do is I just want to offer practically three C's of confession, the three C's of confession. And you know they're true because they're all going to start with the letter C. And I, I don't make the rules. That's just how it works. That's pastor rules. Rule number one, three C's, be concrete. John tells us, if we confess our sins, not just sin generally, if we confess our particular sins, our tendency is to kind of be a little bit like, "Uh, I've been struggling with laziness lately, rather than, you know, I just binged all five seasons of Breaking Bad in one weekend, right? Which is impressive, because that's not humanly possible, so I'm like impressed with you, but Our tendency is to try and avoid the specific ones. Get concrete. Don't just say, I've been struggling with anger lately. Actually confess, yeah, I yelled at my daughter for the third time this week. Get concrete. Second one, do it in community. Not only does John here say, if we confess our sins, the plural, rather than if you confess your sins, if we confess our sins, we've already been talking about it on top of this, how fellowship with God, relationship with God gets played out in relationship with others. Sometimes we think, yeah, I've said it to God, but I don't have to say it to my wife. If you're scared of what your wife thinks about it, you've probably not thought about saying it to the king of the universe. Doing it in community is the way that we flesh out what it looks like to confess our sin. This is how we do it. Lastly, be consistent. John is not writing to people who have not responded to the good news of Jesus. He's writing to people who have already done it. And then he's saying, confess your sins, keep doing it. I think of this quote from Cornelius Plantinga, which is one of the best names I've heard. Cornelius Plantinga, love that name. He says this, recalling and confessing our sin is like taking out the garbage. Once is not enough. We have to do it time and time and time again so that it does not fester. I think ideally, and I say ideally because this is not always possible, but I think ideally you have one or two close friends that you meet with on a weekly basis just for the sake of confessing sin. Doesn't have to be long. Could even be a phone call. This is something I've had in different seasons of my life. Just like a 10 to 15 minute phone call. And you just jump straight in. Here's my sin. Also, how are you doing? How was your week? Here's my sin. Oh, check in, that type of thing. It's just quick. You dig into it. I think what that allows us to do is that we actually, if we're regular on this, we go beyond just like the big public sins that we're aware of into having actually go to like our deepest motivations, our own pride, our own greed, our own selfishness. It pushes us into deeper and deeper areas. This is important because one of the key markers of spiritual maturity is not that you would be, like, totally oblivious to your sin, but is being increasingly aware of your sin. That as we draw closer to God, we are more and more aware of our sin. Now, here's something that's important to remember. There are going to be two temptations. Anytime, like today, where we start to take sin seriously, there's going to be two temptations that we're going to go into. One, we're going to be tempted to just try harder, and two, we are going to feel crushed under the weight of our own failure. John's going to address both of those in these next two verses. Chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. If you just took that first verse, I write this to you so that you will not sin, if that was John's starting point, you would think the try harder method is the way we should do it. But John has waited to put this in there until after he's talked about sin and specifically confession of sin. He talks about the importance of confession of sin so that we won't sin. In other words, confession is the pathway to obedience. This is how we learn to follow Jesus. Confession is the pathway to obedience. You get to see this in something like Alcoholics Anonymous, which is so based on the fact that you have to come and be honest with your struggles. And then out of that comes transformation. We know it intuitively, but suddenly when the goal is to love our neighbors, we think the right approach is to clench our fists and just try harder, pull up your bootstraps. What John is saying is that confession is the pathway to obedience. It's quote by David Banner. I know I like to throw in quotes all willy-nilly, but this quote to me is like, hits the nail on the head. It says this, discovering our core sin tendencies is helpful, because it lets us deal with our problems at their root. But even more than this, it is helpful because discovery of our course in tendencies will inevitably fill us with such despair and hopelessness that we will have no option but to turn to God. Spiritual transformation does not result from us fixing our own problems. It results from turning to God in the midst of them and meeting God just as we are. Turning to God is the core of prayer. Turning to God in our sin and shame is the heart of spiritual transformation. This is where transformation comes from. Turning to God in our sin and in our shame. So the question is not about pulling up your boots and trying harder. In fact, John's just already going to say and acknowledge, I write this to you so that you will not sin, But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate. He's acknowledging the reality. He doesn't want to be too severe. He says, I know we're going to sin. I think the best way that we can think about this is imagining that you're like a little piano student and your teacher comes in and gives you a new piece to play. And you have two options in that moment. You can either look cool and play the piece that you learned on your own and rip through it, or you can stumble your way through the song that your teacher gave you. Which of those is going to be an act of disobedience? The one where you stumble, you hit some of the wrong notes, but you're trying your best? Or the one where you just say, I'm choosing my own path, I don't want to do what the teacher would tell me to do? So The invitation is to just learn how to play this song, to focus on learning how to play this song. Are you going to stumble? Of course, but you're going to get better and you're going to lean into it, especially when you acknowledge the places you're making mistakes on. This is how we are called to live. So don't take the path of just trying harder, pulling up your bootstraps. The second temptation is to feel crushed under the weight of our own failure. To just feel the sense of God's disappointment upon us. I just want you to hear John's words, chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, let me say that again. My dear children, John has just been stressing the importance of sin and cautioning people against rejecting the reality of it, but he does not come with a single stroke of disappointment in his pen. He says, my dear, dear children, with love, with tenderness, with compassion. I think it sets us up to see that this is the way that Jesus comes to us as well. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus as our advocate. I don't know if this is how we typically picture him. Imagine yourself in the heavenly throne room, however you imagine it, maybe with massive pillars that you walk through, the throne in front that you're walking towards. and Just ask yourself, where do you picture Jesus as you enter this throne room? Do you picture him aloof and to the side? disengaged with you, not concerned, dealing with other people who are more important? Do you picture him as an adversary, wagging his fingers, shaking his head in disappointment, counting up all the failures you've got in your life? Or do you picture him as an advocate, standing with you, walking with you in the throne room of God and saying, she's with me. This one's mine. This is the one I died for. This is the one I sacrificed myself for. I come back again to uh, verse uh, verse 9, where it says that God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Faithful and just. On the just side of things is recognizing that this came at a cost, that it was at the death of God's own Son, Jesus, that it was accomplished the seriousness of sin. And on the other side is the side of God being faithful. That he will consistently do it. You don't have to doubt whether or not God will forgive your sins. It brings him great delight to forgive your sin. It's his joy. Sometimes I think we need to hear both these messages about the seriousness of sin and also God's delight in forgiving sin. And the way to know which side you currently stand on, which message you need to hear, I think is this. If God can forgive your sins, why can't you? If you hear it and it bounces off of you because you're already aware of God's forgiveness, you're probably on the side of saying, okay, I need to lean in and take sin more seriously. If, however, you hear that and it hits like a ton of rocks, what you need to hear today is that God is faithful to forgive sins. It's in his character. It's what he does. It's what he likes doing. And it's what he wants to do to you. So my final question, what side of the line do you tend to stand on? Do you tend to stand on the side where you need to lean into the reality of sin, to confess it, or just to acknowledge, God, thank you for your forgiveness?